This morning's lesson has a, a bit of a strange title, Bell Bows Down. It comes straight from the text. If your Bibles are open to Isaiah 46, you can look at the first verse there. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So it's lifted right out of an Old Testament text. But what does it mean? Well, that first verse sounds strange to us because it contains the names of a couple of Babylonian idols. The first known as Bel is better known in the history books as Marduk, the principal god of the Babylonians. The second one, Nebo, was, uh, had a temple in Borsippa, 10 miles away from Babylon, and he was considered the god of wisdom, and he was also a, a very well-known god in Babylon at the time. A lot of Babylonian names, names of kings, were based on this name Nebo. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. First part of his name is based on and is meant to honor that god Nebo, bell bows down, Nebo stoops. That statement, the bowing action, has a twofold application. First of all, the false gods bow down and they stoop because they are weak and they are recognizing the sovereignty of the one true and living God, Yahweh. So they bow down under the weight of that which they can't hold up because they're weak. And they're bowing down in submission to the true God who shows them to be false. That's one application. The second application is that Bel and Nebo are bowing and stooping because they have to be carried on the backs of the people who worship them. The people who worship them made them they're stationary statues, objects of wood and stone, so they have to be carried from place to place. And as the people have laid this heavy burden on themselves, they bow and stoop, causing their own gods to bow and stoop as well. So this passage is going to show us the futility of idolatry. Anytime we go to an Old Testament text such as Isaiah 46... When we talk about idolatry, there's always a challenge to our 21st century American minds. We think, we don't worship gods. We don't have totem poles. We don't carve idols out of wood and stone. What does this have to do with me? But let me tell you, idolatry is alive and well in America. Because anything that you, you worship, anything you put before God, is an idol. And we have many of them. And we always will. John Calvin correctly remarked that the human mind is a continuously working factory of idols. Now, we don't worship Bell and we don't worship Nebo, but we have our idols. And you can think of them according to the letter S. We worship sex, science, state, stuff, and self. We worship sex, pleasure, we are hedonistic in our minds, putting pleasure first. Science is the explanation of everything. Science has explained a lot, and we benefit greatly from science. 
But it can only answer the question how, it doesn't answer the question why. It's not the complete picture. We worship the state in the sense that a lot of us turn to politics as the answer to all our problems, only to find that things just get messier and messier and messier. We worship our stuff. In other words, we're materialistic. and Money is our God. And then we worship ourselves. We're very selfish people. And we refuse to deny ourselves and dethrone ourselves from our hearts. Idolatry is alive and well in America today. And that's why we turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah relates some important wisdom for a generation crumbling under the weight of idols of its own making. And here's the first point that we come to as we look at the text. We're going to learn a little bit, first of all this morning, about the lure of idolatry. Why do humans have such a propensity to follow idols? Why is the human mind a continuously working factory of idols? Why has this been a problem across every civilization of time throughout the history of time? Well, Isaiah gives us three or four reasons here. Here's the first. Number one, we want to make God in our own image according to our own tastes. We want to reverse the order of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God says, let us make man in our image. We want to make God in our image. And the reason for that is it's easier, we think, to whittle God down to our size instead of repenting and trying to become more like Him. And people have done this for ages. Paul writes to the Gentiles in Romans 1, verses 22 and 23, describing idol worshipers. He said, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Trying to make God in our own image. Why do we turn to idolatry? Number two, we want to remove the mystery. How many times have you said, I really wish God would have told me this? Or I really, really wish I could understand the Trinity. I really wish I could understand eternity. Why doesn't God answer all these questions in the Bible? Why has He left so many things unsaid? Some of us, many of us, are uncomfortable with mystery. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 46. The Lord asks through Isaiah, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? I think it's a little clearer what he's asking in the message, which reads, So to whom will you compare me, the incomparable? Can you picture me without reducing me? Now that's a great question. Can you picture God without reducing Him to less than He truly is? I don't think that's possible to do. This has been a debate that's gone through the ages in Christianity for a long, long time. When the Greek Orthodox Church separated from Roman Catholicism, one of the big debates was on icons. When several of us used to travel in Russia and we'd visit a Russian home, one of the common sights you'd see when you walked into the living room of a small Russian home 
is a little shrine surrounding an icon depicting a divine being or maybe a saint or some biblical character. There would be candles set around it. It was obviously a place of worship where they were trying to depict God to help them worship. According to Orthodox religions, icons are needed to assist us in our worship. But in my mind, that goes against the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is under the earth. This is hard for us because when we think about people and things, we use mental images. I'll give you an example. We can do this exercise together. I'm going to say a word and try not to picture it in your mind. Apple. Did you see an apple in your head? Yeah, you can't think about an apple without picturing the apple. How about this one? Abraham Lincoln. You got a stovetop hat and a guy with a beard that's really tall in your head. Maybe giving the Gettysburg Address. It's really difficult to think about Abraham Lincoln without making a picture of Abraham Lincoln in your head. But God says, if you try to image me and erase the mystery of who I am, you're going to reduce me down to less than what I am. So how do we think about God? We think about God using Jesus. The reason Jesus came to earth is to show us what God is like. Philip said to Jesus in John 14, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And, and Jesus said to him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Read about Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 calls him the exact imprint of God's nature. If you limit your thoughts about God to the Lord Jesus, then you're getting about God exactly what God wants you to get. But don't try to draw a picture of him in your mind or anywhere else, because in so doing, you will reduce him. But we, want, we don't like the mystery. We want to know. We want to be able to grasp him, put him in a box, put him in a little snow globe, and be able to look at him on the mantle. That's not the way it works. God can't be reduced down to our finite imaginations. Number three, why are we so drawn to idolatry? We want control. Look at the first part of verse 7. They lift it, that is the idol, they lift the idol to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there, and it cannot move from its place. Now, Isaiah is pointing out the limitations of the idol, but he's also pointing out something that people like about idols. If I want the idol to be over here, I can just move it over here. If I want it over here, I can move over here. I have total control over this so-called God, and I can do my religion my way. I can live my way, life the way I prefer, and no God is going to get in my way. People like idols for that reason. They can control them. And then finally, he says also... We don't want a God who talks back to us. Look at the first or the last part of verse 7. 
If one cries to it, it does not answer. Of course, a block of wood is not going to answer a worshiper. And again, there's two ways of looking at this. Yes, he's pointing out the limitations of an idol. You pray to an idol, the idol doesn't answer your prayer the way the true and living God will answer your prayer. On the other hand, it won't talk back to you either. If you tell the idol, I want to have in my way, the idol can seem to say whatever you want it to say to your mind. This is what makes idolatry attractive in our world as well as Isaiah's. We want to make God in our own image. We want to remove the mystery from Him and understand Him, bring Him down to our level, to our imaginations. We want to be able to control Him and we don't want Him talking back to us and trying to change our lives and talk about sin and confront the way that we live. Now, seeing that and understanding that a little bit, let's move in the second place to the limitations of idolatry. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. You long for idols. You build them. You carry them on your backs. You'll soon find yourself crushed, crumbling under the weight of the burden. George Adam Smith said, It makes all the difference to a man how he conceives his religion, whether as something he has to carry or as something that will carry him. Your religion, is it something you have to carry, or is it something that carries you? Does religion make your life harder or easier? Do the gods you serve weigh you down, or do they bear you up? It's a great question to think about. So Isaiah turns to limitations in verse 7. And the first one that he points out is, idols cannot answer our prayers. We used this in the lure a a moment ago, saying an idol won't talk back. But there's two parts to that. If one cries to it, Isaiah says, it doesn't answer. When do we turn to God the most? We should be praying to Him all the time, right? When times are good, when times are bad, we just had Thanksgiving... Hopefully we thanked Him for the blessings we have. We have to have a holiday to remind us of that. We ought to be grateful every single day and have a positive outlook and look at our blessings. But we turn to God the most when we're in trouble. And what if your God is made out of an idol? What if your God is yourself or your stuff? What if it's pleasure? What if it's the government, politics? Then you've got a problem. Because when you pray to those things, they don't answer. They can't answer. And the second limitation he brings up is, if they could answer, they wouldn't be able to rescue you out of trouble. In fact, our idols are usually the things that get us into trouble in the first place. They're heavy burdens we cannot bear. And so what do we do with these limitations? A lot of these things we're talking about are fine to be a part of our lives as long as they're in the right order. So idolatry is about the wrong ordering of your loves. You have many loves in your life, and sometimes they can get out of order. I want to share with you this 
quotation attributed to Augustine. He says, Living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved, less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Basically what he's saying there is, there's a proper ordering of love. And idolatry is all about getting that order wrong. Putting stuff ahead of God. Putting state ahead of God. Putting self ahead of God. That's idolatry. It's not that you shouldn't love yourself, or you shouldn't love others, or you shouldn't love your country. You just shouldn't love these things first. And then below God, those things have an order as well. I think that's a pretty simple illustration of what idolatry does. It disorders your loves. And it's warned about all the time in the New Testament. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love or serve God and money. John warned us in 1 John 2, 15 and following, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Are you putting as your principal love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, things that will pass away? Or are you putting your treasures up in heaven for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also? Get your loves in proper order. At the top of the list, obviously, should be God. The first and greatest commandment, we all know it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. There's an order. God first, your neighbor second, yourself next. We're getting this order straight as we read from the words of Jesus. Don't make the mistake of equating your beliefs to what's actually happening in your life. A lot of us come to church every Sunday and we say these things. This isn't the first sermon on idolatry you've ever heard. It's not the first time you've ever heard about ordering your loves and getting them straight and putting God first. You give lip service to that all the time. The real test, where it shows, is where your energy goes, where your time goes, and where your money goes. So don't look at the notes that you take at church or the things that you say in your prayers, or the conversations that you have with friends, or the answers you give to your Bible class teachers. Look at how you're really living your life and ask yourself, do I have my love straight? Is God really at the top 
of my priority list in my life? Or am I struggling under the weight of a burden of an idol I'm having to carry? Have I created an idol for myself that makes my life harder? God is supposed to bring you salvation. God is supposed to answer prayers. And idols can't do that. So what do we do when we get caught up in idolatry? Let's look at the cure for idolatry. And Isaiah gives it in one word in verse 8. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Remember. In the words of John Oswald, the antidote to unbelief is memory. And Isaiah calls on us to remember six things. Let's go over them quickly. Number one, this comes from verse three. Remember who has borne you. Remember they're having to bear up their idols of Bel and Nebo. They're stooping and bowing under the weight. The idols are stooping and bowing. Who has borne them? Verse three, listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Think back over your lives. And who has been there with you through the toughest times? Has God ever forsaken you? Has His providential hand not been there in your life? Is He not with you still today? Remember who has been with you. And then go back over those false gods of sex, science, state, stuff, and self. What have they done for you in those times? When you have questions like, why? Why is this happening to me? What is going to happen to me? What hope do I have? How am I going to get through this? Who bears you up under that weight? Has it been your idols? Or has it been God? Remember. Number two, remember who will continue to bear you. Verse four, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. You know, we've all been young. And when you're young, you just, you just feel like you're going to live forever. Old age just seems so far away. This month, our focus is on our, uh, what are we calling them? The senior saints. We've called them all kinds of things. Ray Marsh, he used to like to call them the Nifty Fifty group. And I'd say, well, Ray, I know it rhymes, but the 50-year-olds don't really see themselves as being a part of this group yet. And when you call it the nifty 50s, the retired folks are going to say, well, that's for 50-year-olds, that's not for me. He's like, yeah, but I like the way it sounds, nifty 50. So we did nifty 50 for a while. I heard one one time I really liked, we've never used this, Yahoo, which stands for Young at Heart Holding Our Own. I like that acronym, Yahoo. But we have a great group of senior saints here, seasoned saints, 
whatever you want to call it, older members. And this month, we're reminding ourselves that the, the senior saints of our congregation are important and are to be heeded and listened to and respected and honored because their wisdom is part of what makes us fit together as a church. Folks, we're in trouble if we lose our older people. We, every church needs that. And one of the reasons is they can tell us about how God has been with them throughout everything. They've seen it all. They've stared death eye to eye. They've been through financial difficulties. They've survived family problems. They've seen churches dwindle down. They've seen hard times. They've been through sickness. They've buried loved ones. They know how to live life. The ones of you who are still here after all those years, you have so much to offer the younger generations. Because you can say, I know He will keep this promise that we're reading about in Isaiah 46.4. The older I get, He will continue to bear me up. And the older I get, the more I see how flimsy those little gods are. But it's only by the grace of God. It's only because of His mercy. Listen, if you're a Christian for just a few days, a few weeks, maybe you make it a few months, you realize that you don't become perfect at baptism. That temptation is still a problem for a Christian. And John says it will be in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, he writes to Christians, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. We sin even as Christians, but God's grace continues. For John says there's a second law of pardon for those who have been Christians and who fail God. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friends, that's the only way we get to gray hair with God. That's the only way we get there. Because if we become a Christian as a young person and God says, okay, you've just got one more chance. One more chance after baptism. If you mess up again, there's no coming back. If that were God's attitude, if that was the end of His mercy, we'd all be lost. No one would ever make it to gray hair with God. But God is gracious. He's not an idol. He doesn't give up on us, and He can bear the weight of all your troubles. Number three, remember His works. Verses 8 and 9, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am, of God, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. He wants them to call to mind the things of old. He's wanting them to go back through their history. And we have that history. We can go back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Has that ceased to impress you? Spend a little time in the world and dwell on that. That by words, God created this world in six days. Do you remember the flood that destroyed the whole earth with water, except for Noah and his family? Do you remember the story about the crossing of the Red Sea? How the Egyptian armies, after ten plagues, pursued the Israelites through the Red Sea, and after the Israelites passed on dry ground, God brought the sea down on the Egyptian armies, and Israel was free. Do you recall all those stories in your Bible? How Joshua and the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho seven times, and the walls fell flat, and they defeated Jericho. How they settled Canaan's land. How they were taken into captivity in Babylon, and God brought them back after 70 years. How men crucified His Son, and three days later, He came out of the tomb, glorified. Sometimes we just need to stop and recall this God whom we've been called to serve and all the great things that He has done. And then remember His faithfulness. Verses 10 and 11. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Has He ever broken a promise to you? He's never broken a promise to me. There have been times where I've been disappointed and I've wanted God to do something and He didn't do it. There have been times where I've prayed and my prayers weren't answered the way that I wanted them to be answered. But when I step back and I look, I realize He didn't promise me these things. These were all my ideas. What has He promised? He's promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I will make a way for you to endure every temptation and trial. There's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. You can endure it. He has promised, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. And He never has. And He never will. He has promised, when you pray, I will hear you. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears the request that we, we make of Him, we know that He will give us the request we make of Him. He hears us when we pray. He has promised, I will not remember your sins. Hebrews 8, 12. What a wonderful promise that is. For those redeemed by the blood of Christ, God will dismiss our sins and put them away. He has promised, I prepare a place for you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And there are many, many, many other promises that He has made. Look at those promises and know God is faithful. He doesn't break His promises. And then remember this. Remember His patience. This chapter concludes, verse 12, him saying, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. How many times could God have justifiably walked away from his people? So stubborn. And we're stubborn too. Don't look at Israel and say, boy, those people, I'm glad I'm not like... We're stubborn too. We know what God has said, and still we want to do it our own way. We turn to idols. We get our loves out of order. We're stubborn too. But God is not slow concerning His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Now, there's an old expression you've all heard before. Why reinvent the wheel? I mean, you've got a perfectly good wheel. It's a great mode of transportation. It's about as good as anything's ever going to get. Why remake the wheel? We say that anytime people try to fix things that aren't broke. When it comes to our God, who has revealed Himself to us and sent His Son to die for us and has given us all we need in His Word, why reinvent the wheel? Why try to reinvent God? We can't do it. The idols we make and we long for and we bow down to and worship are weighing us down. They stoop because we're stooping under their weight. Why not bow down to Almighty God who can carry you, who can absorb all your hurt and pain, who has the remedy that will save your soul and will lead to your resurrection at the end of time and eternal life with Him. We want you to have that. We believe the Bible has the answers and can tell you how to have that. If you don't have that in your life, we're going to sing an invitation song And we ask you to come right now as we stand together and as we sing.